Hey there, podcast listener. I just wanted you to know that the John Desperry podcast is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection and access to daily news digests like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. With your Audible membership, you can download titles and listen offline anytime and anywhere. Download the free app onto smartphones, both Apple and Android. Listen across devices without losing your spot. If you can't decide what to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. I've been using Audible for about a decade now, and I couldn't be more satisfied. I love Audible. I've listened to audiobooks, dramas, podcasts. To get started with a one-month free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. That's audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. That gets you one month free, which includes a free book credit, two free Audible originals, and access to their massive library of resources. One more time, audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast to get started with Audible with that free month. Here we go. I got a special treat for you today. We're going to do two chapters, double header, two and one, chapters nine and ten. Ready to go for you right now on the John Deesbury podcast. Chapter nine. first hour passed without an eruption. Lydon hadn't found anything in the data cluster to indicate the existence of a magical bit of software or code that was being protected. No black boxes or hidden clusters, so he was forced to go deeper. Just as he implemented a second dose of decryption software to break into the next level of security, a voice unexpectedly rang out in the room that almost knocked him out of his chair. Mr. Malik, can I get you anything? The voice said, and Lydon spun around looking for the female to whom the voice belonged. It took him a moment to realize that it was coming from a comm system. Um, no, thank you, I'm fine, he responded to the air as he looked at the nearly blank main monitor. Okay, just call if you need anything, the voice replied, then the comm went dead. Uh, thank you, Ladin said as he decided it would be best if he put something on the main monitor that made it look like he was actually doing what he said he was doing. With a few taps on the data mod, the interactive image of a subspace message interface appeared on the screen. It was a fake screen that he could manipulate as if it were real, should anyone enter the room. When Ladin looked at his mod screen again, he found that his decryption program had stalled. It had reached an impassable line, and he groaned. Okay, what are you? he asked, looking at the stalled-out code. As he examined the information, he realized he had reached the absolute end of the line, like a dead-end road, but more like a locked door. Ladin had never seen a security code just stop the way this one had so his guess as to how to proceed was as good as anyone's. Testing a hunch, he applied a custom decryption software that he designed himself just to see what would happen. To his amazement, like a key to a lock, he was in. 
The security measure disappeared, revealing a whole new line and type of security that he had never seen before, but looked daunting, because after a brief examination, he noticed that every line of code branched into a self-emulating strand. It was insanely redundant, and all he could do was stare at it in disgusted disbelief. Why would anyone do this? he asked with a grimace as he poured over the lines. This is going to take forever. I don't have time for this, he complained after looking at his chronometer and seeing that he had less than four hours until he needed to be back on the sublight ship. He quickly ran through a few lines and his stress level tripled. Gah, this is ridiculous. Why is it so redundant? It's not even an effective security measure. It's just annoying. He growled at his mod with exasperation and stood up from the perch he'd occupied for far too long. I have to take a break, he said, then dropped his hand on the comm button. Can I get some water, please? He said, and the girl at the desk responded immediately. Yes, Mr. Malik. I'll send it right over. It'll be in the delivery module in just a few seconds. Ladin looked around the room. On the wall to his right was a small glass door with a silver handle. That must be you, he said. A chime rang from the device, so Ladin walked to it and opened the door. There was a pitcher of water and a glass inside, so Ladin poured himself some and drank it down quickly. After another glassful, he placed both the pitcher and the glass back in the module. Looking at the delivery system, he was astounded. There were no moving parts, only an empty case with a chrome disc inside at the bottom and one on the top. It seemed impossible, but the only explanation for how it worked was teleportation. He raised an eyebrow. Fascinating, he said in a low, quiet voice. The delivery unit, if it worked via teleportation, would be exactly the kind of technology that might validate the existence of something like the lamp. He took another drink, examined the delivery module one more time, and then went back to his data mod. Okay, let's try this again, he said, as he sat down and started to sift once again through the redundant codes. They were all the same, pieces of code that basically reproduced themselves. Why? Ladin asked for probably the hundredth time. Then, one little idea sprouted until it became a feasible option. Instead of trying to bypass the strands, or eradicate them, which would be crazy, he decided to try and separate them. Instead of being circles of code that were impossible to escape, he would find the middle where they started over and separate them, thereby turning them into lines. He could work with lines. Quickly, he began working on a program to single out the redundant strands and separate them. He wasn't exactly sure what it would do, but it was worth a shot. At the very least, he'd be able to follow each line to its end, giving him the possibility of bypassing them. Besides, with time running out, he had few options. With a few final taps on his data mod, he implemented the program. One by one, the strands of code separated, becoming two separate clusters like two smaller isolated firewalls. The astounding thing was how simple the administrative override was. Yes! Ladin exclaimed with relief and jubilation. This I can work with! He looked at his chronometer. The anxiety of the day had parched him and he needed another drink. He pulled the pitcher and glass from the delivery unit again and took a sip. Leaning with his hand against the wall, he pulled the glass away from his lips and noticed he had drunk the entire pitcher in two trips. He placed the glass back inside the delivery module and shut the door. The main viewing screen of the hub still showed the image of his faux subspace message being composed, but as he approached his data mod, he froze for a second then lunged for the device. The security network appeared to have been breached. Ladin swiped through the code to be pleasantly and shockingly surprised. In a matter of minutes, a process that should have taken hours had finished, and he had access to everything. It wasn't just the local system either. As far as he could tell with a rapid meandering of his fingers, he had access to everything linked to the Telluride network, even the homeworld nets linked via subspace. To his utter shock and surprise, 
Regardless of what was in this virtual cave of wonders, he was in. With wide eyes, he scanned through clusters and clusters of information, databases of personal identifications and information of anyone registered on the nets. While he still didn't believe in the lamp's existence, he at least had confirmation and reason to believe in his abilities as a world-class streetjacker, maybe even a galaxy-class jacker. With every additional registry that came up on his screen, Ladin discovered new avenues of opportunity. Banks, trusts, government documents, and average Telluride citizens' data were all at his fingertips. He could start a run on a Telluride bank, cause a government coup, or steal entire identities, people's lives, with the stroke of a few finger taps. It was all there, but so was Haslan Malik's warning, and a sudden tug at his conscience caused his elation to fall. Don't touch anything, Malik had said rather forcefully. If you tamper with any of the information in there before finding the lamp, they will know. It was an extremely difficult command to follow. The temptation was immense. There was enough information and access to sensitive securities to make any man richer than he could possibly imagine. Lydon couldn't help but think what his life would be like without having to survive as a streetjacker. At the age of 16, he could be richer than he ever imagined. With one spree on the information he waded through, he could retire to Karamina or some other exotic planet in the Galactic Union. He could take Simic and Zade far away from their troubles. Could Malak offer the same security, even if the lamp were real? Okay, I won't touch anything, Ladin said to his mod. I'll just leave a little trail. Working quickly, he created a series of coded bookmarks to trace his way back to the vault, as he called it, if he had time after finding or not finding the lamp. At the very least, this information was real, not some mythical or magical software that could solve all of his problems. With a smirk, he activated the bookmarks. I'll be back for you later, he said, then looked at his chronometer. He had just over three hours. The idea that he would be wasting so much time looking for something uncertain was frustrating. If Malik wanted to bring down the Tellarides, he could easily do it with the information Ladin found in the vault. He groaned his frustration and slouched in his chair. Lines of coded information passed by, and Ladin's irritation increased with each passing minute. Personal and government IDs, holdings, deposit accounts, property documentation, and a plethora of credit exchange accounts that could easily be drained. Trades data, personal data, and anything else to do with commerce lay at his fingertips, but it was not to be touched. Not yet, anyway. He had to find the lamp, or at least prove it didn't exist. Just as his thoughts were culminating in frustrated avarice, the code suddenly stopped. Ladin picked up his data mod and examined the final lines, eyes scanning down the screen until he reached the end. He squinted in confusion because the last line was open, unfinished, like an open-ended question, like it wanted him to finish it. Ladin tapped on the screen and a cursor appeared where the code was unfinished. He looked blankly at it, his mind racing. What the... he said. The fact that the code was open-ended meant that he could fill it with anything. All he had to do was finish it. But with what? Opening his code input keyboard, he entered a simple set of commands that would change the background color of the entire interface. He did this just to see what would happen. Nothing happened. He squinted his eyes again and furrowed his brow, then tried to change the line spacing. Nothing happened. This makes no sense, he said, exasperated. He felt agitated. It was probably lack of sleep or a reaction to the air mixture but he felt himself exceptionally low on patience. He tried a few more simple commands with the same result. I don't get this, he exclaimed as he stared at the screen. What are you? He barked, 
and his fingers absentmindedly entered the same phrase into the data mod in plain text. He set the mod in his lap and rubbed his forehead, closing his eyes for a moment. When he opened them, his entire screen was blank. He jolted upright and stared at the blackness. Okay, where'd you go? He said, slightly panicked, then tapped a few times on the mod. There was no feedback response of any kind. That's not good, he said. If I have to start this whole thing over. He looked at his chronometer. Three hours. This is ludicrous, he growled, wanting to slam his fist onto the hub monitor. Okay, get a grip, settle down, let's try this, he started to say, but halted when, to his utter shock, he noticed a single line of plain text appear in the middle of his data mod screen. I am the link access manipulation program. What do you desire? Ladin blinked at his screen and cracked an incredulous, though very skeptical smile. Is this a joke? He said and laughed nervously as he started to enter an answer to the question. I desire the link access manipulation program. In an instant, the lights in the room and all devices went black. Like someone had flipped a switch, every piece of equipment was dead. Even Ladin's data mod screen was blank. Oh, that's really not good, he said, frozen in his chair in pitch blackness. Chapter 10 Footsteps could be heard outside the hub main control room, and beams of light danced sporadically through the mostly opaque windows and door. The hub main was totally dark, and Ladin stayed motionless in his chair, his biggest fear being that he had just caused a massive station-wide system failure. A light suddenly came on near the door of the room, filling the space with a dim blue light that wasn't as bright as the lights had been before, but plenty to see by. Ladin examined his data mod. The data transfer cable was still securely fastened to the port, the power cell still half-charged, but the device was off. What the... He cursed under his breath. A loud grinding sound startled him, and he turned to see the door to the room suddenly slide mechanically open. The shabby girl stuck her head in, holding a small lever Ladin assumed for opening the powerless door. Are you all right, Mr. Malik? The girl asked. Ladin froze again, his heart racing. Yeah, I'm fine, he replied, trying to hide his nerves as he stood up in front of the open panel below the hub main monitor. What happened? He asked, trying to sound innocent. I don't know, the girl answered nervously. We've lost main power in the whole station, but the backups are on, so we still have lights, life support gravity, that sort of thing. They told me they're working on a solution and to ask you to please stay put. It was obvious the situation had rattled the poor girl as her speech sounded like a rehearsed emergency protocol. Main power, is that something that can be restored? Ladin asked, trying not to sound too prying. I don't know, the girl said with a slight quiver in her voice. I've never experienced it this bad before, but I'll be back to update you. She said, giving Ladin an almost fearful smile as she backed out of the room, leaving the door open behind her. Yeah, it's bad, Ladin said to himself, then started packing up his things. He picked up his data mod, placed it back in his bag, resealed the panel below the hub main monitor, and shoved the cable into his pocket. Through the still open door, Ladin saw a dozen men and women darting frantically around the halls, both human and telluride. They seemed to be heading down a hallway adjacent to the hub main room where Ladin sat sweating. Looking out the door with his bag in hand, Ladin first wanted to bypass the congregation of technicians and head for the elevator, but that was probably a bad idea. 
It would look suspicious if a kid tried to quietly slink out from the room that looked like the obvious cause of the problem. He took another deep breath and looked around the corner at the group of people clustered together inside an open doorway. He decided to approach them and at least attempt to legitimize his need to go back down to the floor below. Excuse me, he said, but none of the frantically distracted workers responded. Excuse me, he tried again, louder this time. A slight accumulation of nervous sweat had already formed at his temples. A Telerad man with short brown and green hair and a lithium supplement turned to face him. What is it? he said in a heavy Telerad accent. It was obvious he wasn't at all interested in anything Lydon had to say, but sized Lydon up scrupulously, probably because the man wasn't expecting a kid. I was just wondering what was going on. I was in there trying to send a subspace communication, and I really need to... Yes, yes, the man cut in. We are working on a system failure. We will try to restore your session, but you'll likely have to start over. Please wait patiently, the man replied almost robotically, then turned his attention to the mayhem at the door. Ladin nodded. Okay, thank you, he replied as he turned back around and headed for the elevators. He grumbled to himself things about getting off the station alive as he placed his hand on the identification podium by the lift doors. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Malik. The system isn't working still. Do you absolutely need to go down? The shabby girl asked. Well... I... Ladin started, but the girl interrupted him. Let me call the lift for you. There's no reason you should be stuck here. Still visibly nervous, the girl tapped on her data mod screen and began talking. Yes, I need a lift for the communications and data hub as soon as you can. She paused to listen to the voice on the other end of the earpiece. Thank you. I'll let him know. She ended the call and looked at Ladin with the best smile she could muster, considering the situation. They'll be here shortly to take you back down. Most everyone is being held in the concourse for now. She looked down and brushed the hair out of her face, then looked up and smiled shyly. You're welcome to stay here, though, if you like. Lydon flashed a sheepish, awkward smile. No, that's fine. I'll go back down. Don't want to miss my flight. But, uh, thanks. I'm terribly sorry for the inconvenience, Mr. Malik, the girl continued, and Lydon tried to avoid any more eye contact with her. He wasn't sure, but he thought maybe she was doing her best version of flirting. Oh, it's no trouble, Lydon said with a shy nod. After a minute of waiting that felt like a lifetime, the lift doors opened and a blue-haired and middle-aged driver stuck his head out. Who's going? He said gruffly with a Telerad accent, and Ladin raised his hand. Concourse only, the driver affirmed and manually closed the doors. Gripping a lever jutting out from an open panel on the wall, the driver threw his arm down and Ladin felt, at first, like his stomach would make an appearance from between his teeth, but regained himself when the box came to a sudden stop. The driver opened the doors to reveal the concourse where thousands of people milled about or sat in small groups talking. Ladin searched for a place to look inconspicuous and wait out the remainder of his stay, which he determined by a glance at the chronometer would be another two hours. The entire station was filled with blue security lights, making it difficult to distinguish anything but commotion in general. Across from the lifts, near the main gate by where he had disembarked from the sublight ship, Ladin found what looked like an eatery with tables and chairs situated in small clusters. He headed straight for them. On the side of the eatery, at the edge of the concourse, he found one unoccupied chair and took it. Looking around, he saw that he was surrounded by humans and telerides on all sides. Some were engrossed in conversation, others perused their data mods. Ladin sat and watched them for a few minutes. His heart raced just a little as he looked around. It was hard to shake the feeling that he was the one person in the entire throng that apparently didn't belong. Sooner or later, it was just his luck, they would figure him out. Ladin kept a tight grip on the bag at his feet. The synthahide skin gathered his nervous sweat. It wasn't even the contents of the bag that monopolized his thoughts. 
The most likely scenario was that he was probably carrying around a benign piece of technology with a half-full power cell. What bothered him most was that he had broken so deep into the Telluride nets that if his mod hadn't been fried in the power surge, he probably had enough residual logs of the entire event trapped in storage that if the Tellurides found it, he'd be hung for sure. That, of course, was no consolation for the fact that if he didn't have at least a little bit of something on his mod, Malik was going to hang him anyway. Ladin sighed and wiped the sweat from his forehead as his body began to cool down. In the distance, near the center of the station by the lifts, came the unmistakable sound of an alarm, just barely audible in the din of the crowd of people. But for Ladin, it might as well have originated directly in his head. Alarms were never a good thing. Ladin was staring in the direction of the warning sound when the lift doors in the axle of the station opened and more than a dozen security officers stepped out with shock batons. Ladin was quickly reminded of the origin of much of Earth's technology, especially that which related to law enforcement. More officers came marching calmly down the gate tunnel from the port docks where Ladin wished he was already heading to get off the station. The officers fanned out within the concourse. Their actions were so subtle that very few of the thousands of people in the vast enclosed space even seemed to take notice. Ladin's leg began to bounce uneasily in his chair as the officers congregated near the lifts. Ladin looked down the short tunnel toward the ship, but it curved so he couldn't see if the gate was open. He looked at his chronometer. Too much time left. He wished for a rock to hide under until it was time to leave. Pulling the sweaty synthahide bag tightly to his chest, he prepared to stand up when a familiar and soothing voice startled him back into his seat. Hello, Mr. Malik, Kimber said pleasantly from directly behind Ladin. Looking up reflexively, he found himself staring at the glistening lips and shining teeth beaming out from under her transparent breathing mask, all painted the blue hue of the lighting. Nothing, Ladin blurted out, and Kimber looked at him with a coy smile. I'm sorry, she said. Oh, I thought you said something else, uh, he said, wiping his forehead again. With the obscene amount of sweat that had to be pouring down his face, he probably looked guilty or sick to her. He hoped the latter, but he hoped neither, now that she was standing right next to him. The smell of lilac, or whatever heaven-forsaken flower she wore, washed over him and carried him euphorically outside his predicament. Kimber grinned pleasantly. May I sit down? she asked, and Ladin only gazed up at her. She stared, smiling back at him, and then glanced toward a chair on the wall. Oh, right, sorry, Ladin said, snapping out of his trance. He quickly and awkwardly stood up, releasing the feverish grip on his bag, and pulled the empty chair over to the table. The three other occupants at the table looked annoyed to be adding another body to their numbers. Sorry, I guess this whole thing sort of has me a little jumpy, Ladin said to Kimber his mental faculties once again back in working order. You know, being out in the middle of empty space and all, Ladin added, ignoring the catty glares of his table mates. It's not completely empty, Kimber said pleasantly, pointing to the wall of windows that wrapped magnificently around the entire space station. Being still thousands of kilometers away, the icy beige surface of the local planet sparkled as the rays of the far distant sun reflected off its surface. Oh, well, there's Pluto. Ladin said, trying too hard to sound ironic. I wouldn't worry about it, Kimber said. Blackouts happen. They have a backup system, so I think we're going to be okay, she smiled again. Unfortunately, the backup system only runs the artificial gravity, life support, and the wonderful lighting we have here, she added as she looked around with pretend awe, and both she and Ladin laughed. They never last too long, so I think you can relax, she said, then placed her hand in Ladin's in a playful way, but her touch took his breath away. Part of him wanted to take her in his arms, to hold her, maybe even kiss her, 
but all he managed was an awkward smile and he stared at her blue-washed face, her lips and eyes sparkling. Well, that's good, he said with a nervous half-smile as she pulled her hand away. It was easy to play his nervousness off as an irrational fear of space, but he knew full well it wasn't space, and he doubted it was even the system-wide blackout he had caused. Kimber nodded, and Ladin looked away from her for the first time since she'd shown up. He looked toward the axle and noticed that the security teams were gone. He jerked his head around quickly in all directions and spotted two officers near a seated group of people not 20 meters from where he and Kimber sat. Is everything all right? Kimber asked, noticing more of his jumpiness. Ladin quickly turned to face her. Yeah, fine, just, uh, you know, looking around. The officers moved on past the group to whom they had been speaking and headed in Ladin and Kimber's direction. So was your visit pleasant? I mean, before the blackouts? Kimber asked in her angelic tone, an obvious attempt at diversion. But Ladin's attention was still on the officers, and his heart stopped when he saw an officer take a data mod from a human man with a breathing mask. He grabbed the handle of his bag again and sat more upright in his chair. Mr. Malik, are you alright? Kimber asked, her voice definitely more concerned. Uh, yeah, fine. Is there a lavatory station nearby? Ladin said, ignoring her for the first time. Kimber looked at him quizzically. Yeah, right over there, past the query desk. Ladin jumped up. Thank you, he said, and began to walk quickly away, but turned around as he did so. Uh, don't go anywhere. I, uh, he said as he made eye contact with one of the officers. Just don't leave, he finished as he turned back around, headed urgently away from danger. The query desk was at least 50 meters away, and he could see the door of the lavatories just down the hall from there. The plan, regardless of its desperate conception, was to hide out as long as he could. It was a juvenile move, something Ladin remembered doing at the orphanage school when he wanted to avoid getting whipped for missing an assignment. It had worked a time or two. As he neared the query desk, ready to veer into the lavatory hallway, someone called his name and his heart jumped into his throat. Mr. Malik, the woman's voice said, and he recognized it, but it wasn't Kimber's. Ladin turned to see the shabby girl from the hub main communications room wearing a breathing mask and running toward him. Mr. Malik, I'm so glad I caught you, she said, holding up a transfer cable. You forgot this. Ladin's eyes shot wide with incredulity as he reached into his pocket to find it empty. I was worried I wouldn't be able to find you and all these people. I was just heading to the query desk to page you, and there you were, she laughed gleefully. Ladin looked over the girl's shoulder to see two security officers talking to a couple standing nearby. They were examining the couple's data mods. The nightmare was verging on fruition as there were no other buffers between Ladin and the Inquisitors. Feeling his chest constrict, he knew he was going to be sick if he didn't get to the lavatory. Anyway, I found this in the lobby of the communications hub and I figured it was yours since you were the only person to come through there, the girl continued, but Ladin wasn't listening. The officers finished with the couple and looked precisely in his direction. To his detriment, he made eye contact with one of them. Uh, excuse me, I need to use the, uh... Ladin said to the girl and turned away to escape. But your cable, Mr. Malik, the girl said as she followed him. But he didn't care. The lavatory door was only a few strides away and he could have reached it, but the surly and distinctively telluride voice of one of the security officers interrupted his escape. Sir, can I speak with you for a moment? The officer said sternly in Bagadite, and Ladin froze. His heart raced. He thought of pretending like he hadn't heard the officer, but the act of pausing even for a fraction of a second betrayed his lie. Slowly, he turned around to see the shabby girl flanked by the two security officers. One was checking her ID credentials, the other was staring at Ladin with an ID scanner in his hand. Ladin managed what was supposed to look like an obliging casual smile. 
Of, of course, he said. But I need to warn you, if I don't get to the lab soon, we may need a cleanup crew. He laughed nervously. You're an idiot, he ridiculed himself. This won't take long, sir, the officer said as Lydon returned to fully face them. What's going on? Did I do something wrong? He asked, looking from the officer to his partner and the shabby girl. Well, if they weren't suspicious before, they are now, he thought. No, sir. There's been a security breach, and we're just checking IDs and data devices to see if anyone had anything to do with it. Oh, you think that someone used a data mod to, what did you say, breach security? I mean, that seems a little far-fetched, don't you think? A data mod? I wouldn't think one of those would be powerful enough to... I just need to see your ID, sir, the officer said. Oh, of course, Ladin said, handing over the badge he wore with, among other things, a fraudulent name and personal history. He was sweating so badly, he was starting to smell. His essence made him even more nervous. The officer scanned Ladin's credentials. The wait time for an ID scan was usually counted in milliseconds. The scanner passed the one-second mark and Ladin swallowed hard. I'm dead, he thought as he remained motionless, his eyes on the screen. After only another second, his face and information appeared on the officer's screen. The man scrolled down the display, examining Ladin's credentials. Malik? The officer asked, as in, Haslan Malik? The question was becoming commonplace. Ladin looked eagerly into the officer's eyes. Uh, yes, he's my, uh, nephew. Uh, I mean, uncle. I'm his nephew. The officer nodded slightly and handed back the ID card. Do you have any data devices on you, Mr. Malik? Data devices? Ladin said anxiously. Yes, data mods, transfer drives, flash sequencers, anything of that nature? The officer looked annoyed. Well, I, uh, let me check, Ladin said stupidly and pulled his bag up to the counter. The attendant behind the desk, a younger man with a small patch of green hair under his bottom lip, watched Ladin's inspection. Well, I think I have a data mod in here somewhere, Ladin said as he deliberately pulled clothes and shoes over the top of his mod. It must be at the bottom, he said, his heart racing. He thought it might actually jump out of his chest and run away, the very thing he wished he could do. Do you have one or not, sir? The officer asked, very annoyed. Well, I... Just as Ladin was about to lie, the room filled with bright white lights, and the alarm sound, which had become much quieter, stopped. The officer looked around as a gradual din began to rise in the cavernous concourse. People seemed relieved that power had been restored. The officer put a hand to his ear while staring sternly at Ladin. He didn't so much as nod his head. Ladin waited and looked over his shoulder at the laboratory when he heard the door open. An older woman stepped out and caught the eyes of the occupant sitting at a table near the eatery where Ladin had left Kimber. She smiled as she hurried toward her awaiting party. Ladin turned back to the officer, who was still listening to something in his ear. The shabby girl was talking to the other officer. After another brief moment, the inspecting officer dropped his hand and said, Thank you for your cooperation, Mr. Malik. It seems the breach was a false alarm. Have an enjoyable trip back to Earth, he finished as he stowed his ID scanner in a pants pocket and motioned for his partner to follow him. Together they headed back toward the axle. The shabby girl was left standing at the query desk looking at Lydon with a beaming smile. Well, that was interesting, she said a little too excitedly. I'm so glad the system is back on. I was getting a little scared. Phew, she sighed with a smile. Anyway, here's your cable, Mr. Malik. Thank you. Ladin said as he reached a sweaty hand out to take the thing that could have easily been his hangman's noose.
Okay, folks, that was chapters 9 and 10. 9 and 10 are really cool because they take place on a space station, and I love space stations. As you know, I've been talking about my what I love most about space sci-fi are the space stations. And this space station is not very imaginative. You probably noticed. What I like most about these chapters is that I get to create suspense. I love suspense. I'm not very good at it. And I was talking to my wife the other day about this, about how to create effective suspense. And and I told her, I don't feel like I do it well enough. She was reading through my newest book and there was a scene where there was, you know, suspense was key. And I didn't think I accomplished it very well. And suspense is a hard thing, okay? Because you have to, you're dealing with a lot of different elements with suspense. You're dealing with not just the actions of the characters, but you're dealing with the setting, how they're interacting with the setting. You're dealing with the activity that makes it suspenseful. What are they up against? Is it, Are we talking man against machine, man against man, man against environment? What is the suspense? And in this one, we're, the suspense is sort of man versus man, forcing a man versus machine kind of a conflict. And... And, and I think we've all been in that situation. I think that's what's relatable here with Ladin is that, uh, you know, we've all had a deadline. We've all had a deadline. And how often have has technology sort of gotten in the way of that deadline? Um, I was talking to my mother uh, not too long ago, and she was telling me about how she was writing her thesis for her master's degree. And this would have been back in the early 90s. And <laughs> she had this this old Tandy computer. And that's, that's what we had. We had a Tandy computer growing up. Um, if you are a, if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, you know what Tandy is. It's the Radio Shack brand computer. Um, if, if you've read Ready Player One, you know what a Tandy is. Tandy was brought up in that book a few times. Um, but, but a Tandy is really simple. It had no hard drive. So what you had was, um, you had these floppy disks. And if you did not save your work immediately to a floppy disk and you had a power surge or or you closed out of the program without saving it, your work was gone. And she was telling me that the night before that the night before it was due, the night before she had to defend it, um, or the day before, something like that, she had lost the whole thing. She didn't save it. And this was her conflict. And and this is sort of the man versus machine. And in her case, it's the man versus man. So the, the requirement for the thesis, creating the man versus machine conflict. And this is where Ladin is. Malik has forced him to go up there to get this thing. And so I think we can all relate to this, that at some point, technology or machine or the tool we're using has failed us. And that's, uh, that's I think that's really relatable. And that's what I like a lot about these two chapters is that we can relate to Ladin, even though we've never been on a space station. We've never been in space. Well, maybe not not me. Some of you may have been in space. But we've all been in a situation where we've been failed by technology. And that's where Ladin is. I think it's time to talk about Kimber now. Super funny story. I wrote Lamp um, after I had written my second Immortal Light book and before I'd written the third one. So Lamp is technically the third book I wrote. Um... But when I created this, Kimber's original name, and this was, oh, probably the original conception of Lamp and the characters was probably in, I would say it was probably around 2013, 2014. And when I created the, the what, what would be the love interest for Ladin, I she wasn't named Kimber. 
she was actually named Tinder. And I thought it was a great name. I thought it was a cute name. And around 2014, 2015, there was a certain app <laughs> that became really popular. And not for the not for good reasons. Y'all know what, what the Tinder app is. And, and I left Tinder's name. I'm like, okay, this app is not going to be a big deal. Um, it's not going to interfere too much. But I and I published the first version of this book, probably around 2017, 2016. And uh, Tinder did not go away. And it got to the point where when I would read it in class with my students, I would say Tinder and they'd start to laugh. These are seventh graders. These are 12 and 13 year olds. They would laugh about the name Tinder. And so I knew it had to go. Um, so Tinder became Kimber and Kimber is named after a girl um, who was the daughter of some family friends of ours. And I'm like, that's a cute name. Kimber works, so I'll use Kimber. So that's where Kimber comes from. I wanted Kimber to be a really super independent girl. Um, she's only a teenager. She's 17, 18 years old in this story, but she's really confident. You get the impression that she's older than she is. And, and you're going to find out later that that comes from her background. Um, I'm not going to give away anything about her right now. But I wanted her to be somebody that Ladin felt like was out of his league. And there are a couple reasons for this. I love the story of the boy who feels like the girl he wants is out of his league. For me, this, this has a couple of relevancies. The first one comes from one of my favorite books, The Outsiders. You had Cherry Valance, the girl who was from the social side of the social order. And she was part of the rich kids. She drove a Corvette. She was uh, red-haired. She was not like the greaser girls. And she was something that Ponyboy thought was just unattainable. And I sort of understood that. Um, because I felt like a lot of the girls I had crushes on, especially in elementary school and middle school, were those kind of girls. Um, I, I felt like I was lower class. Not lower class, but just like I wasn't as rich as they were. We didn't live in that part of town uh, that some of those girls came from. But what's ironic about this, um, and might have contributed to why I wrote Latin this way, is because I married a girl from the right side of the tracks. Uh, so to speak. Uh, my dad was a diesel mechanic. My mother was a teacher. You know, we lived a pretty modest life. My wife comes from um, upper income, higher class stock is how I always saw it. Uh, of course, the reality of that is, you know, that we're all people, we're all the same. And, and it was only a perception. But that's how Ladin sees Kimber. Kimber is perceived to be, I mean, she's gorgeous. She she works in space, and so that's you know he he's grounded. He works with technology. He works with robots. He works with with computers, and so he sees her as you know too high, too unattainable. You know when he's done with this mission, he'll never see her again. Kind of a situation, but that's not keeping him from falling in love with her. And that's the situation I had with my wife. Uh, we met in a, a religious institute class when I was 21 years old and she had just gotten back from college and we were in this class and there were desks and beanbag chairs and stuff. And she, she invited me to sit on the beanbag chair next to her. And I was like, uh, uh, I can't, I won't pay attention if I'm sitting next to you. And it was, it's a really hilarious sort of rom-com moment. Um, but it wasn't until about two months later that she and I actually started dating. And that's how, you know, I sort of put that in this story. 
um, where, you know, it's unlikely, mostly unlikely, that they would ever get together, but Lydon still, that's all she, he can think about is her. Okay, that's pretty much all I wanted to say about these chapters. Um, in the next chapters, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing two chapters a week, I think, um, because these are going slow, and I think I could do a little bit more time on the podcast. Um, so get ready for two more chapters, 11 and 12, next week. Um, but for now, uh, I want to just do really quickly um, my uh, occasional installment of What's Good in Audio. I was introduced to a new podcast this week. It's not a low-profile podcast, but I love it. Um, it's sports guys talking about movies, and it's called The Rewatchables. And it's hosted primarily by Bill Simmons. And if you know anything about Bill Simmons, he was a, or he's a writer. And he's a fantastic writer. And I love to hate Bill Simmons because he is all things Boston. And, and when it comes to sports, I am quite a few things L.A. And uh, so... I got to know Bill Simmons really well when the Lakers and Celtics were playing in the twenty, you know, twenty ten uh, championship, um, and I love to read his articles because he would have to concede a few things about the Lakers, even though he loved to hate them. But Bill Simmons has has joined forces with a bunch of different writers and different personalities, and they talk about movies. They talk called the rewatchables because they they dissect movies. Um, and talk about why they're so rewatchable, what were the most memorable scenes, what hasn't aged the best. They have all these categories, and I love it. Um, so if you get the chance, go check out the rewatchables. It's not entirely kid-friendly, because uh, every once in a while they like to drop drop the F-bomb. Um, be, I mean, they're sports guys, right? Not that that's an excuse, but yeah, check it out, the rewatchables. Um, that's what's good in audio. So that does it for this week's podcast. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find my books anywhere paperbacks are sold online. Please check me out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at John D. Sperry on all three of those. And remember, if you want a free trial of Audible, go to audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast and sign up for that free trial. You get a free book, two free Audible Originals, and access to their entire library for a month for free if you go to audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash jdspodcast. All right. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. Be good and don't do anything I wouldn't do. And we'll see you again. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, John D. Sperry. Additional music and sound effects are provided by EpidemicSound.com. The John D. Sperry theme song is Abstraction by Talent Studio. This podcast is a John D. Sperry production, copyright 2020.